and I share that with you because once you break the code on that, man, it, it, man, you start rocking and rolling. You know what I mean? And the teams, they get closer and closer, and it's like bring it on, man, because I, I don't care what happens. I, I'm getting the snorkel to my buddy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Patriot to the Core podcast. I am your host, Thad Forrester, and this is episode number 36. A while back, I mentioned that there were two states or three states that we had not received any downloads from. I don't believe I've addressed this since then, but I do want to say that shortly after that, actually actually before the, the podcast even aired where I talked about it, uh, we kind of we got the, the all 50 states are represented now with at least one download of one episode of the podcast at least. So anyway, appreciate that, Delaware and uh, New Hampshire, and I think it was uh, North Dakota, something like that. But now we're represented at least by all 50 states. But to get on now to our guest, Mr. Kurt Buller of the Air Force, I reached out to a friend of mine who's been on the podcast, uh, episode number one, Johnny Yellick, and I said, how would you introduce Kurt Buller? And he said, in our community, he needs no introduction. So ladies and gentlemen, in the Air Force Special Tactics community, Mr. Kurt Buller does not need any introduction, so we'll just get right into it. What is your life like now and your job now? Yeah. Hey, Thad. So, uh, man, before I guess I, I get into that, if you don't mind, I'd just like to say I've uh, got a lot of respect for, for you and your family, the Forrester family, of course, and the special tactics community me- means a lot to us. Uh, I didn't I didn't know Mark well. Uh, I met him at combat control school. I spoke at, I was asked to speak at his graduation. And anytime I speak at the graduation, I ask to go out on a mission with the guys just so I can get a sense of the team. So I can kind of, uh, you know, massage my words to hit the right message for what I think the team needs. And I remember Mark specifically that night. It was an airfield seizure out there on the on the Bragg Range, and one of his teammates got separated, and they were doing a, a simulated man down drill. And I remember Mark because he was big and strapping, and I remember him getting up and going, "I'll go." And he grabbed the nearest controller next to him and just like grabbed him by his shirt, and he went running outside the perimeter and went after him. And I knew right there, man, that, that that's a brave kid right there. And I even I even mentioned it in my remarks at uh, at combat control school. I specifically remember making him stand up so that I could address him and congratulate him on uh, on his courage and looking after his teammates. So uh, 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 that, of course, I'm uh, I'm sorry that it ended that March uh, time with us ended here. Of course, man, we know he's in a better place. But I wanted to start off and just say that I'm a real fan of the Forrester family for raising a guy, a young man like Mark, and then for allowing the special tactics community to stay part of your family. It means so much to us that you think enough of us that you allow us to stay part of the family. So, Thad, thank you for doing that. Thanks for asking me to, to, to join this tonight. I looked at the other folks that you've interviewed, and, man, I certainly don't feel like I belong. But uh, if you want to ask me questions, I'm certainly always ready to talk. So uh, I'll be happy to, um, to answer them. Thad, I, uh, I, I retired from the Air Force after a little over 23 years. I was a special tactics officer the entire time. And uh, when, when I retired, I transitioned right into teaching high school. I, I taught junior ROTC for three years, which I think we'll get into a little bit. And then, you know, about two years into that, I stood up my own kind of consulting business, Intrepid Leadership Group, with the idea that teaching's always been on my heart. But as I was teaching in high school and sometimes getting a classroom full of young men and women, young adults that maybe weren't as, in, as enthusiastic about learning as I was teaching, I realized that maybe I needed to find a different audience to spend some time with. So that I could intellectually be challenged as well as feel like I was having an impact on the folks I was teaching with. And that's what Intrepid Leadership Group allowed me to do is I was able to go out and reach out to the old community, the special tactics and the, the rescue community 
and they would invite me into their space and allow and allow give me the opportunity to talk about things that that I think I did fairly well for a couple of decades in the Air Force. So so for me now, I own Intrepid Leadership Group. Uh, it sounds like man, one the word intrepid. I, it, the reason why I chose that word is when I visited the Center for the Intrepid once and I saw the all the men and women that. That the enemy took shots at, or that, that the accidents took shots at, and there they are getting rebuilt back together, and their whole, you know, the they're intrepid, the 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 cadre down in Intrepid Leadership Group, the medical teams, the entire body of work down there was putting folks back together, and I always thought intrepid was a strong term. It means fearless, which of course, man, if you read Gates of Fire, you know, the opposite of fear is love, not fearlessness. So I like all how it's all wrapped together in that. But uh, intrepid is a strong term. I, I followed a. Uh, the OSS model, our special forces brothers models. When I chose the word group, and because it sounds larger than it really is right now, it's just me. When they when they numbered the special forces groups back during the Cold War, you know, one, three, five, seven, ten, and then you get your up to twenty with your with your uh, national guard groups. They wanted to make it look like there was more capability than there really was, and maybe that's what I'm doing with Intrepid Leadership Group. But uh, it's certainly uh, it, it's not as big as it sounds, but it, it's mine. Uh, I get to go out and I get to go back and be around, you know, uh, uh, capable men and women. And uh, we get to talk about leadership and development and things that are near and dear to me. And it gives me an opportunity to try to help them and encourage them to meet their potential. So uh, that I know that was a mouthful to get us to get us started, man. But that's kind of where I am right now. How's, how's that for a starter? Yeah. So are you a one man show? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So I, I work by myself for myself, but the beauty of it is I get to go into the spaces. I learn from the folks that I'm around, but uh, of course I get to bring my experience to them, uh, and, and try to get in and get them, you know, going hopefully in, in some different directions or to at least see themselves a little bit more critically. If I, if, if man, if I look at myself and I think what I've done fairly well in my career, is that I've always looked at myself critically, meaning, and I, and I could see what I think was the real me, my strengths and my weaknesses. And because of that, if you can identify, you know, what you're good at, and you can exploit it. If you can identify what you're not so good at, you can try to mitigate it or work to get better at it. And really, that's what I try to do when I when I get hired hired to go in, is I try to help folks see themselves a little bit more clearly. And then together we kind of chart the way ahead. So yeah, Intrepid Leadership Group is uh, is by myself, but fortunately it allows me to plug into a network of uh, of operators, guys that I grew up with, and uh and, and get to keep spending some time with them. Yeah, so you're hitting all branches, I guess. Yes. So so right now it's mostly Air Force branches, special tactics, and it's the rescue community. Um, I, I have a large network of friends out there, you know, the, from the different services. Of course, I spent the majority of my time in the joint environment, but I have not yet gone out and taken a contract or gone into the joint environment to to do leader development. Uh, that hasn't happened yet. Okay. Well, I, and before we go on, I do appreciate what you said earlier about our family and about Mark. And I was not at his graduation. I think it was just my parents. I wish I had have been. I've heard about your speech there. I had not heard about what you the story you shared about about Mark that night. But um, thanks for sharing that, and really appreciate your support and so many other peoples in the community. I mean, I I am probably a a good person to ask about their experience with the special tactics community because we really have not been forgotten. And so thank you for you know being one of those to to. Keep the support going. All it's been, you know, almost seven years now. Um, so, so let's. I'd like to kind of go back a little bit uh, as and, and find out why you chose the, the combat control field. Yeah. So uh, I think if 
if you want to know why CCT, I think the the first question is why the Air Force, because I, I grew up in an Air Force family. My my father was re, is a was a, was a chief master sergeant. He's since passed. He was retired chief master sergeant, and that's all I ever knew was just bouncing around from base to base with him. Um, but but we didn't we weren't terribly close. I was the youngest, and there was a huge age age spread between he and I. Uh, he was a hard dude, so man, I would try to find ways to not be around him because when I was around him, man, life was pretty difficult. I understand why he was hard on me. I'm not uh, critiquing him. We just weren't we weren't real close, which means I didn't ask him a lot about what are you doing in the Air Force, what's going on in these Air Force bases. Man, I was just a kid. I was out there you know, doing sport after sport after sport. Uh, in high school, I played a few different sports. Uh, I was I was a good wrestler. I won my last match. I was a, I was a, a, a capable wrestler in high school, and and there, therefore I had some opportunities to go to some different schools, but mostly some smaller schools in Virginia was, was where I was going to be able to wrestle. And then the opportunity to wrestle at the Air Force Academy uh, was posed to me, and uh, I thought it was pretty neat to go to Colorado and maybe get away from Virginia and, and go be myself. So that's what got me into the Air Force. And at the time, I was like. You know, we didn't have the internet. It's not like we hopped on the internet and watched a bunch of YouTube videos to see what it would be like. Yeah. I Man, I just went out there thinking it'd be cool to go join the Air Force and maybe fly airplanes or do something like that. And uh, when I got out there, I was pilot waverable uh, for my vision and for my height. Uh, though maybe on audio, I sound like I'm six foot eight. In reality, I'm I'm five foot nothing almost. I'm five three, and uh, uh, it's a funny story if you don't mind. So I spent three and a half years at there at the Air Force Academy, getting crushed academically because I'm a wrestler. That's just, you know, just grinding my way through the academics. And uh, I think I'm going to go to pilot training. And my senior year is when the Air Force decided they had too many pilots. So they reassessed all too many pilot candidates. So they reassessed all the waivers. And there was and mostly the group that I fell into was either the groups that didn't fit the cockpit real well. Okay, so there was a group of guys that were too big for the cockpit. And, and, you know, the football players, you know, and then there was a group of guys and gals that were too small for the cockpit. And those were the girls, a male gymnast and me. And, <laughs> and as you can imagine, our lobby group wasn't as strong as the football player lobby group. So all those guys got their waivers and the small group of uh, young ladies and myself and the male gymnast, man, we didn't get our we didn't get our waiver. So here I am three and a half years into the Air Force. The career day at the academy is already coming on. And, uh, man, don't take this the wrong way, but the only jobs that were left, in fact, I won't even tell you what they were because I don't want to disparage folks in those career fields because they're, 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 they're absolutely needed. They're just not for me. So the three jobs that were available for me to go do, I was like, man, I cannot believe I just crushed myself for three and a half years. And this is what, these are the ones that are left for me. I'm, I'm absolutely going to be unhappy. And of course, man, when God closes one door, he does it by design. He opens up another deliberately. And that's when I had heard about combat control because it wasn't advertised at all as a career day. And as luck would have it or as fate would have it or as he had designed it, uh, the try the next tryout was in about 10 days. So I put together a package real quick. Uh, again, as, as it, maybe as it was planned, the wrestling coach that recruited me at the Air Force Academy, just happened to be, turn, become a combat control officer later on, and he was running the tryout. So I got a short notice invite to come because he knew the type of person that I was physically. I went out to the tryout. I, I made it through tryouts, and you know, four or five months later, I got commissioned, and I went off to the combat control pipeline. So uh, whether it found me or, or, or I found it, and I, I guess that's debatable, but I could tell you that as soon as I went to the tryout and I was going through this week-long you know, assessment and, and getting crushed – you know, and I look to the guys to the left and the right, and they're just like me. I look at the cadre that are anywhere to five to you know fifteen years older, but they're just hard dudes 
with hard stories. And I could tell you, man, this is exactly where I want to be. This is exactly where I need to be. And I and I busted my ass, uh, Thad, to make sure that I could make it into it. And uh, and 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 I was fortunate enough to get into combat control to and and run with the guys that I was able to run with. So I guess that's how I got into combat control. I went to Colorado to wrestle. Thought I was gonna fly planes. Turns out that wasn't uh, in the cards. And uh, uh, man, I was fortunate enough to get a quick tryout into combat control. And and then I was fortunate enough to kind of keep grinding my and clawing my way through it. Thad. So you know everyone who anyone who's familiar with you know AFSOC or combat controllers, I mean they're gonna they understand that it's it's tough. I mean, how did you make it through? Yeah, the pipeline? yeah, yeah. You bet, Thad. So um, well, I, I think the real the real story about the pipeline for combat control for pararescue specifically, not necessarily for all battlefield airmen, and we can talk about the difference. But for those two specifically, is, is the water work that goes with it? Because I tell you, there's a lot of there's a lot of young men out there and young women now that can do real well on land. You know, I mean, they're just beasts on land. You know, but but the thing about the combat control, the pararescue pipelines, then and that they're separated now, but they're fundamentally they're 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 still the same. Is what you have to be able to do in the water, and that's what was very difficult as a wrestler. When when you're wrestling, you're in a match and things get tough, man. You just wrestle harder, you grind it out harder, man. You you push into overtime and you just keep grinding it out and you win. But when you're underwater and you've got to get through this water confidence event, that where they're what they're doing is they're trying to see how well you can manage stress underwater. Well, it, it it's the opposite. The action is is the opposite of that. So that was the diff the most difficult part for me in the pipeline was to philosophically shift how I address stress instead of getting angry or fired up or fighting harder underwater you got to do just the opposite you got to relax because you got to slow the heart rate down because you got to extend what little oxygen you have left in your body for as long as you possibly can and i'll tell you that it was formative for me as a as i grew into a leader in the air force and in special operations was if i would have never had that training and if i would have just been a land discipline kind of operator then when things got tough i'd have just fought it out and gotten gotten angry with it and fought through it just like i did as an athlete but really what it showed me to do is when things get tough is when you got to slow the heart rate down and you got to see with more clarity you got to increase your ability to to think think clearly when the body may may not physically want you to do so so uh that's what i learned from the pipeline uh it took me a while to get to 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 learn that but most guys do have to figure out how to do it and and i was one of them and i was able to to figure out how to do that and man it took a lot of heart to to kind of stay underwater when your body tells you not to anymore um, but it's also pretty cool when you're down there struggling. You know, we see it call call it seeing Miss Wiggins, and you, you got that uh, that anxiety building up, and you want to come up to the surface, and you look to the left and the right, and you see your brothers down there dealing with the exact same stuff. Or if they're already done and they're watching you, they're, you know, they're they're over there giving you a thumbs up, telling you to to just complete the task. Uh, so you asked me how I made it through the pipeline. I made it through the pipeline because I was part of a team. If I'd have had to gone through the pipeline by myself, there's absolutely no way. I would have achieved the level of standards that they needed, specifically in the water. But you know, taking in some, I wouldn't have been able to achieve those standards by myself uh, because the the team made me stronger. And I'd like to think that along the way, maybe when guys look to their left and their right on occasion, they saw me, and maybe somewhere along the way, I helped them achieve higher standards too. Yeah, and when sure. you do that long enough, man, it it becomes it becomes pretty special to be part of something like that. So was the water the hardest part of the pipeline for you? Yeah, it, 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 yeah, without without a doubt. 
and to explain to the folks that are listening that may not have any experience with how we use the water. So ultimately, every special operator or operator or guy that's going to have to go get in a gunfight and win the gunfight or, or, or make, a, make an act under stress, what the community has learned is if you want to replicate stress, like you want to do it cheap, of course, because, man, money is important, and you want to do it low risk. So you know, one example, if they, they could take us up to 25,000 feet in the middle of the night, crack the ramp. And then say, and then see if you're going to stress or not before you jump. But that costs a lot of money, and the risk is high. Or they could put you underwater, give you a task that you need to uh, accomplish, and then when you start to not have enough oxygen, and that pain and that anxiety starts to build up, and that fight or flight kind of uh, starts to kick in, man, they can just sit there and watch you. It's safe. It's cheap. It's man, it's a pool, and I mean it's safe because of course they're there to pull you out, and then then they want to see who can handle it and who can't. The ones that can't handle it, they stress out and they come to the surface. The ones that can uh, stay calm underwater and they extend the bottom time long enough to achieve the task. It took me a while to, to break the code on that. Um, but once I finally figured it all out, man, I was able to stay. So I'll tell you, I always was like uh, on any team on a water event, man, they were probably like, hey, everybody keep their eye out for bull, man. We got to make sure we get them through. So I was never dominant in the water, but I was at least uh, – a strong enough fixture on the team that my guys wanted to help make sure that, that, that I was there and that yeah. they were looking after me. On land, I always felt like I could carry my share of the load plus other people's burden, and that's where I really tried to pay folks back is the things on land would come more natural to me. As an athlete and with, with my endurance and my strength and my size, I was able to uh, really help out on land. But in the water, I certainly – it was very, very difficult for me. So even if you were a strong swimmer, it, there's really a, a mental thing. You've really got to – you got to get, I guess, while you're underwater to, as you said, to slow down and to know you can stay under a little longer, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's more than just being, you know, an accomplished swimmer. I tell you, an accomplished swimmer probably has the benefit of being more comfortable in the water. So they don't, they may probably not get as anxious or their technique allows them to accomplish the tasks better underwater because they move more efficiently they maybe get more distance out of each stroke or whatever the task is but at the same point then on land body strength may not be able to carry the ruck may not be able to run that's the beauty of these types of uh, operational pipelines that take both land and water into account is it really makes the it, 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 it's the whole per the whole person and when you really look at the athletes and you know the SEAL community, the the divers in the Army, the you know the 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 maritime teams in the Marines, you know Marine Soft, and then of course in uh, our battlefield airmen is the one that operate in the water. It's not your prototypical kind of massive, you know, huge guy, because it, man, that just kind of hurts you in the water. But then if you're a really thin, you know, really thin, svelte, long, tall swimmer, well, that hurts you on land, and uh, and that's why the pipeline's there, man. It's, everybody gets a shot. And then you just hope you got to figure out how to adapt your body to be able to to be successful in all of the environments. Yeah, Ish and George took me uh, in the pool there at the at, at Pope there at the twenty first, yeah. and just showed me a few underwater drills that they did. And I've always considered myself a very strong swimmer. I've been swimming since I was very 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 young, you know, without floaties, and and uh, I'm very comfortable in the water. But man, it was I couldn't do it. At all, and I, I thought I could, you know, I can go sit on the bottom and all that stuff, but you know, unti untying knots and the the simple things, I'm sure for y'all that were very simple, I couldn't even come close to. Completely. Yeah, but to be fair, fair, Thad, you were just there, kind of in a recreational role. 
But if you had signed on the line and said that this is what you wanted to do, then then you'd have done it, man. You know what I mean? Like that. That's the difference. Is you know, if we commit to it, we can we can accomplish it. Um, you know, because even now I, I I swim more now than than run just because the body's taking a beating, and I'll warm up with a few underwaters, and I'll be like, man, how the heck did I ever do a 50 meter <laughs> underwater? Well, because it's recreational. But if somebody came over and said, hey, Bowler, get over here, man, it's on the line. Well, guess what, man? I'm going down and I'm not coming up until I get to 50. Um, you know, so it's, it's just the difference. You know, I'll never say never. Uh, man, if they told me tomorrow I had to go through Indoc again, I'm, I'm going to say no to that because that, man, that course was tough and I'm 48 years old and that, that, that's runway behind me. But, uh, you know, never say never, man. I, if I learned anything in the pipeline, uh, one, you can't look at somebody and just determine that guy's going to make it and that guy's not because there's so much inside the skull that really determines that. And, uh, two, man, I learned that. There's not much. There's not much we can't do if we just commit to it. And uh, and I tell you, uh, Thad, that that brings that brings a lot of comfort to guys like us that have that are in these pipelines that are on these teams, because even when the missions just seem very very difficult and demanding or, or damn near impossible, man, we just know, man, we're gonna whatever it is, we're just gonna not quit and we're gonna accomplish it. And it's it's really comforting, man. Especially when you know when you look to your left and right, and you know that there's dudes there that 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 have proven that they have the exact same qualities. And uh, man, it's strong, man. It's a it's a capable thing. I tell you, it is the qualitative advantage over our enemy. Like I know we talk about are the technological advances we have over over a lot of our adversaries, and of course we try to protect it because our adversaries tries to steal it and then reverse engineer it so they can build it cheaper and then use it against us. But what they haven't been able to do, man, is they haven't been able to figure out how to uh, uh, select and assess and train guys like we do in our special operations community. And I'm telling you, man, it is a qualitative advantage over the adversary. Well, I'd like to get into a little bit of uh, leadership, like like you were a part of and, and how you assessed people. But first of all, how how was your role as an officer how did it differ from those that were enlisted in, in the pipeline or I guess throughout the whole – I guess the pipeline or, or beyond? Yeah, you bet that. We'll start with the pipeline because that's what I – that's why I think I felt that this was a good place for me because as, as I was going through officer selection as an officer candidate to see if I could qualify to even enter the, then the combat control officer pipeline, it, and they since renamed it the special tactics officer pipeline, what I really liked about it. As as we were out and the cadre were all around us, you wouldn't be able to tell who the officer versus who the senior NCO was by the way they engaged each other and engaged us. But but what I mean is because everybody operated at a high level and was professional, but it's not like everybody deferred to this one guy that was clearly the guy in charge. Everybody was fit. Uh, everybody had clear roles. Everybody was allowed to to uh, engage us and critique us and. And, and you know, and, and and do the different things that they needed us to do. It wasn't until you really saw them in uniform or they started, you hear them address each other, that you realize what the hierarchy was. And and I and I and I just thought that was neat. Not because I was a, I'm afraid to be in charge, or not because I'm afraid to have other people in charge. It was just a warm, intimate setting. Warm's probably not the right because we were getting crushed, but you could see the intimacy amongst the guys that were already established. And how well they work together. And I was like, man, this is pretty cool. Like, man, being an officer with guys like that, man, that, that, that's pretty cool. So in the pipeline, as we go through the classes, everything, you know, they expected the exact same. We went through all the, the same training with the enlisted. We went through it side by side, which is exactly how it should be. Uh, there was a little bit more responsibility in the officer as there should be, you know, keeping accountability, making sure lights are out, you know, uh, doing the, you know, 
you know, making sure all the tasks are getting done. But what was cool is, man, if we if if we would have, this is probably oversimplifying it, but if I would have went around and told everybody all, all the cleaning tasks in the dorm, and then I just went and sat back and then inspected the cleanliness of it, I would have been ineffective and the cadre would have seen it. And fortunately, it wasn't in my DNA or my teammates' DNA anyway. Man, I would take one of those tasks too, and we would all just chip in and do it together. So uh, that that's how the pipeline is. And then when you get into the teams, you, you carry that over, but then you got to watch it because there's, there's clearly some different roles that need to start to occur when the stakes get higher. You know, as the stakes start to get higher and higher and the, the, the tasks come on and, and there's different roles on the team, well, then clearly the, 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 what the officer does starts to become much more clear versus what the senior NCO's responsibility is versus the NCO versus the sled dogs. And when I say sled dog, uh, that, that's a term of endearment for our young guys that are out there pulling the sled, man. If you can, you know, if you ever seen the, I did ride the horses or the, 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 the dogs before they get uh, latched up to the sled, man, they are just losing their mind because they just want to run and pull that sled like it's nobody's business. Yeah. So when I use that, I just want your, the audience, our, our listeners, our teammates here to realize that that's a term of endearment. Uh, man, I wish I could pull a sled again. This whole body's a little broken down. But those were the good days when that was the mission was to snap into the sled and just pull the nation's business as, as fast and as hard as you possibly could. But uh, so, you know, in the pipeline, man, we went side by side. We looked after each other. Uh, we ate dinner together, man. We were friends. We were teammates. But we recognized that there was a, a delineation and responsibility that carries over into the actual operational teams. But the stakes just get a little bit higher, which makes the roles a little bit more crystal clear. Um, and then as you as you become more and more senior and, you know, after two decades in the, you know, in the service, of course, man, I'm not going to go in and, you know, the young sled dog's not calling me by my, by my first name and, and hanging out with me. Um, but he, he may call me BL, which was my operating initials uh, or Colonel Bull, you know I mean? To just show the endearment, the affection, the mutual affection that we have for each other. But they also realize that man, when the special tax officer makes a decision that they're going to execute it. But I think what helps us in our business, and I suspect it's like this in all of the, the capable units out there, that when uh, the officer makes a decision, the force realizes that it was informed by the advice of his C, his senior enlisted advisor, or his enlisted counterpart. And uh, I think that's what we get right in special operations is, uh, man, it's designed that the officer and the and the NCO, man, it's a two-man buddy team. It's a swim team. Uh, you know, the the, off, the 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 NCO may be the guy that's in, that's, uh, in charge. You know, he might be barking out orders and making things happen, but it's the officer that's in command. And there may be an elegant difference or a slight difference there, but the officer realizes that the authority rests with me. And right now, maybe it's the team sergeant's job to be to be getting everybody on task so I can visualize and start to anticipate the next phase of whatever it is that, that's supposed to be done. Or maybe in this instance, I got to get on task and I got to get in there and start directing orders as well. But, uh, you know, that's uh, that's the art of leadership. Um, I, I think it probably comes easier in special tactics because of the affection, the intimacy, uh, the, the things we do together in our training brings us naturally, more naturally together. Uh, you know, with this, this my business intrepid leadership group, the, um, the as I try to figure out where I'm going to go with this and, and, I, and I've done a little bit of work with corporate, I think that's where corporate misses out. Man, like when I think about corporate leaders and when they've got to sit down and they've got to make a heavy decision or, or the multiple decisions they have to make through the day, I think the way the system's designed is just difficult for them because they don't have that senior enlisted advisor or that senior NCO sitting next to them. The guy that grew up in the trenches, 
to advise them. It, it, it just doesn't seem to be like that in corporate. Or if it is, I, ha- I haven't had the experience to see a company that was designed like that. But I'll tell you in the military and the Air Force, I've concluded that God has created senior NCOs because, man, those senior NCOs have helped me uh, make mostly the right decisions. But it, it also meant that I never had to carry the burden alone, that I could turn to my swim buddy uh, and, and get some advice before I had to make the make, make the decision, you know, drop the hammer or, or, or make a life or death decision. And uh, it's pretty special, man. I feel bad for our counterparts, our leadership in corporate that, that don't get to have that relationship with uh, with his teammate that he might have grown up with. Does that make yeah. sense? That yeah, that's that? a good point. I mean, I, I would like to, to say something on that is uh, and see if this is what you're talking about. Maybe a corporation brings in someone from the outside to run it. But they have no idea what it's like to actually be somebody to work their way up. Maybe let's take it, for instance, my business. I'm in the steel industry. And so you may bring somebody in who's never actually worked in the mail shop or has never been a buyer. But they're going to be a a boss over these folks now. And, And this happens all the time. But you are at a disadvantage in some ways because you've you don't know what it's like to come through those ranks. And and if you don't have someone that you can trust and rely on who is in those positions or has been, then you are definitely at a disadvantage. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, it, it is that. But I guess also to be fair to my t- my buddies in corporate, I, I haven't walked in their shoes, and, and I recognize that their deliverables were different than my deliverables. So, man, you know they're they're executing something for profit, and these guys that you're talking about that maybe they bring in external to run the organization, man, they know exactly how to turn a profit. And that's why those guys are corporate leaders. You know, of course, in the military on target, man, we're not fighting for profit. We're fighting to win. Uh, and while clearly the, the military wants us to be as efficient as possible, ultimately they want us to be effective. And sometimes, man, we have to sacrifice efficiency and we have to use more resources to ensure that we're going to dominate and be effective. And maybe because of that, they're allowed to be able to create this manpower system where you can have a, a senior NCO and an officer paired up to go do the work to make sure that we're effective, that we dominate, that we went on target. Where maybe in corporate, you, you just can't afford that, that those different types of pipelines to just create profit. But I tell you, um, it, it just looks lonely to me. Like if I look at my buddies in corporate that have to make these decisions, I um, man, I'm certainly prepared to make a decision by myself, and, 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 and I will if I ever have to. And I guess there's probably been occasions where I had to. But I tell you, man, it's pretty slick to be able to turn to a buddy that you've known for two decades that that is blood and is blood and sweat and cry right beside you, and you get his advice before you make the final decision. It's um it's pretty special, man. You know, and it's hard. I think it's hard to recreate, and I suspect corporate maybe can't even afford to do so since uh, most of it is for profit out there. How do you, as a leader, get commitment from your team? Yeah, commitment. Let me um let me go back to Indoc and. Just tell a quick story if that's okay. All right. So, uh, so indoctrinate. When I say indoc, indoctrination. Back in the pool, and and hopefully, I, man, I got some teammates out there from whatever services that that you know that are combat divers that man recognize that know what buddy breathing is. Buddy breathing. Two guys share one snorkel. Thad, did uh, did my my buddies ish? Did they run you through any of that? Did you have to do any buddy breathing by chance? No, but I would have loved to try it. Yeah, man. So two guys share one snorkel. You go face down in the water. You don't have anything on. Well, no fins or anything like that. You got a mask. You got your snorkel. And, uh, you know, the two guys, they, 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 they lock their arms together. 
because you got one air source, so you certainly can't lose grip on the other. You look in each other in the eyes because you, you can't talk, but you can still communicate with the look, and you go back and forth, and you just share the snorkel. Even the civilian scuba divers know what it's out there means to buddy breathe, but they're going to buddy breathe and get to the surface and get to safety as fast as they can. In this instance, it's a drill that you got to survive X amount of minutes while the shark or the cadre swim around you and, and start to crush you as they try to convince you that one snorkel is not enough for two of you and to make you quit. Okay, that's and it's distrust. They're trying to get you to see who can handle the stress. Well, when you start off, man, as soon as you get the snorkel to your buddy, man, you just you like you're waiting for it to come back because they start to make your body work. They're throwing you around, they're twisting you, they're pushing you to the bottom, they're stealing air. So your 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 body's screaming for air. And when you start this drill, man, you're just like waiting for hey, I need the snorkel back. And um, you're you're trying to be patient. But you're waiting for your chance to breathe. And after a couple of weeks of fighting through this or days, depending on how natural you are at breaking the code, you start to realize the real essence of the drill is to get the snorkel to your buddy. If every if you take what little air and what little energy you have and you and you spend that to get the snorkel to your buddy so that he can get a breath and you're swimming with the right buddy and he has the exact same mindset. Then it, it becomes poetry in motion. That you know what I mean? Because if both guys are trying to stay on the surface so that when the snorkel comes to you, you can keep it out of the water and get air, then both of you are working really hard. But if my if, if I realize my task is to give up my own buoyancy and drop down beneath them, hit the floor and push them up so that the cadre can't keep them underwater, he gets that breath of air and then he rocks back and sacrifices his own buoyancy to get me to the surface because he knows that he that he's got to get the snorkel to me. Man, it becomes pretty cool, and I, and I share that with you because once you break the code on that, man, it, it man, you start rocking and rolling. You know what I mean? And the teams they get closer and closer, and it's like bring it on, man. Because I, I don't care what happens, I'm getting the snorkel to my buddy. So your question was up about commitment, and you know, in buddy breathing, you get committed to your buddy pretty quickly, and in the teams, you get committed to your teammates pretty quickly, regardless of the rank. I always told my guys, you don't have to like the guys on your team, but you gotta love them because you gotta at least respect the commitment that they've put into it to get to the teams, and then the courage that they demonstrate to go fight for their nation and do some of the things that we ask them to do. Um, so even if you don't like the guy, because there's just on occasion there's just unlikable guys around you, you just don't you just don't get along, but you certainly gotta love them, and I think that's. That speaks to the commitment. When you ask me how do I get guys to commit, it's because, man, I, I, I tried I, I tried to spend my career getting them the snorkel. Um, and I think, oh, you know, once you start, when they see that and it's genuine and it's not it's not a, it, it's not this clever shell game to make it look like I'm trying to get them the snorkel so that I can get what I want out of this deal and get a promotion and get get a better job. Like it's never been about that for um, for my teammates, the, the guys that I've enjoyed working uh, for and with. Uh, it, it wasn't about them getting something out of it. It was about trying to get our operators to the X so that they could defend our nation and then get them home safely, you know, in one piece as, as best as we possibly can. And uh, and I think when guys see that that's what your what your life is about and you live your life like that, it's not just when you show up you're going to be a professional officer, but when you're off duty, man, uh, even when you're blowing off steam and you realize that, man, if we're going to go get fired up tonight – Man, tomorrow I'm going to knock, knock it off early enough so the next day I show up rested and with a clear mind so that I can make I can make wise decisions again. 
Um, you know, they see you reading the right things because you're trying to understand the enemy or the world. Uh, they recognize that you're you're coming by to see their their families and the you visit them them in the hospital when their baby's being born, and they start to realize it's genuine and it's just you getting them to snorkel because it's what you like to do. And uh, and what's really neat is in our business, guys reciprocate that. And uh, and so when you talk about the commitment, how do I get them to commit to me? Really, I think the first step is you commit to them. And if you live a life of committing to your guys, the Air Force core value, you know, calls it service before self. When you really do that, man, I, th- I think the commitment flows and you don't even have to ask. And you don't have to ask for the commitment. When you ask them to do something that they don't like to do, that they don't want to do, which certainly occurs, they're still going to do it because they recognize that, man, you're getting a snorkel to them. And maybe when now when I ask for something that they're, that, that isn't popular, they realize it's their turn to get the snorkel to me and they're going to help me out and they're going to do it. And, man, it's just the right thing to do because it, it's what I've determined that we're going to do. You know, Does that make sense, Dad, there? Yeah, yeah, I, I like that. And I like the poetry in motion, too. Yeah, right on there. <laughs> So you are, from what I'm told, you you are a great motivator. I don't, I don't think that would be hard for anyone to, to figure out after listening to you already. How do you motivate people, your teams, and then the people that, you know, through your business now? And probably, shoot, even, you know, your kids. Yeah. Man, I think I got the energy of a really, really tall guy jammed into my little body because, man, I'm just ready to roll, dude. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm a pretty amped up guy. Uh, I've been blessed with a colorful career with great missions and around great, great people. And um, God's blessed me with being able to to see things and to tie it together and make sense of it. In fact, I tell you that I think what I do is I, I, I see the simpleness in it where I've got some buddies and some really, really good friends, some really talented friends. They have the ability to, to see the complexity and to understand the complex nature of what's at work. And um, I think I have the ability to understand this, the, how simple it is. And I think you need both of us. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I'm better or worse than them. It's just my skill is I see the I see the patterns there. I see the simplicity at work, and um, and I can articulate it either very clearly so that they know where we are, or through story or experience or something colorful. In which case, man, it's man the guys understand it and they get they get fired up. Um, so man, I, I think. Um, I think that's what I, I think I'm gifted. I'm lucky to be a storyteller. I'm lucky to have lived a fairly colorful life with some with some great men and got to watch them do some great missions and myself got to get out there on occasion and understand it a bit too. And then, um, man, I just got all this damn energy. I guess I'm going to talk whether you want to listen or not, you know. And maybe somewhere along the way, folks start to get amped up and man, maybe they're running, ready to run through a brick wall <laughs> with you, you know. But I think what they know is that you're going to run through the brick wall first and they're going to be right there with you. You know, you're not going to tell them. To go take the hill while I stand back here and, and, and film you with my GoPro and go Facebook Live on you, you know. So, uh, you know, maybe 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 that's part of it. I don't know, Fed. Wow. Okay. Yeah. You run through the brick wall first, and they know that they they know that about you. There's a there's a a ton more actually I'd like to ask you, but for sake of time, maybe we'll we'll have to cut out some things things we had talked about earlier, but. And, and I want to make sure you say you get in anything that you want to say too, Kurt. But I'd like to ask maybe a couple more questions. And one of them is, you know, as a leader, what were some of the most difficult decisions that you made? Yes, yeah, so I think, um, you know, because because you know, I, I we I prepared for that one, and I tried to think back to try to find that one 
and I guess I concluded that there's probably two categories might be a little bit more illustrative. And the first category of the round of tough decisions that I was faced with, I think dealt with the finality of people's careers. So as a commander, man, you got to make decisions on discipline or, you know, or, or advancement. You, you got to make final decisions, you know, on, on whether it's personnel, the personnel pyramid. And at some point, man, not everybody gets to, to move forward or whether you have to make a, a discipline decision that forces somebody out of the Air Force with or without benefits and without benefits and they have a family. And uh, I think those are, are really difficult. Or th- those are some of the harder de- uh, decisions that are, excuse me, that I wrestle with is the finality of people's careers or benefits, you know, as that's all lumped together. The, either their hopes and goals that I dash because it meant I had to make a cut or because of something that they did and then I had to conclude that it was improper. And because of that, they don't get maybe the lifestyle or the benefits that they or the protections that they thought they were going to get. Those are really difficult. Okay, and when you man, you got to do it. Uh, and I was, and of course, I'm prepared to do it. And of course, like I told you before, it's it's nice to have a team around you, you know, uh, and then a senior NCO and the chain of command to give you advice. But then you make that decision, and those are tough. I think the other, well, clearly the other one goes down to the realm of combat, and it kind of is goes in if you can think of the classic go no go man are we going to go on this mission or are we not um you know the classic vignette that is easily painted in the movies but in reality they're not always that crystal clear uh, you know until you start to find yourself the momentum going and then you realize you're going to have to make a decision as to whether we're going to go or not go and it's and it's going to have a uh, dire consequences either way because if you go the risk that you're going to face if you don't go the 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 risk of not accomplishing the mission you know and, and, and those types of uh those types of decisions and then I think even worse than that and I think maybe some of my officer teammates out there will understand this is making that decision when you're not the one going like if you're the one going I found that it's much easier to make the decision because I got skin in the game like physically I'm gonna I'm gonna go and and experience the results of my decision it's it's much more difficult when you're on headset and you're in the jock and, and you got to make that decision and somebody else has to go execute it on your behalf. Um, and it's that I'd probably tell you that's probably the toughest thing that I've had to do in my career. I, I'd never enjoyed it because I'd just rather be out there accepting the risk with them. And that's where I think that um, that intimacy that we talk about, the affection that you have for your men and that you hope that you've earned in return that they're okay, that I'm asking them to go do something really, really dangerous. Um, because I think they know that if I could, I'd be right there with them. But if I was, then I wouldn't be doing my job. Um, and that gets kind of weird as you become a senior officer in special operations because you want to continue to be the guy going on missions. You want That's how we identify. That's how we earn our respect and trust from our teammates is going out there and accepting the same risk. But at, at some point, if you're doing that all the time, then you're not where you need to be with your rank and your influence to set conditions for them to be successful. Um Man, I think those are some of the tougher decisions that I was faced, uh, forced to deal with. That. Yeah, very interesting. That's definitely not what I was expecting. That, that's really good stuff. Uh, one other thing I'd like to ask you, Kurt, is uh, is this is probably pretty important. It is to me, and, I, and maybe to a lot of the listeners. I hope is, you know, what is the role of the CCTs today? Yeah. So um, let me take a just a larger step first and talk about battlefield airmen because man, I got brothers out there that were all kinds of different color berets and different backgrounds. And truth be told, man, I'm colorblind. I just care about talent and getting them on target so we can win, so we can dominate. 
But um, so the battlefield airmen, you know, by design, you know, pararescue men, combat controllers, tactical air control parties, and then our, our special operational weather teammates. Uh, and, you know, the, the goal there is to put them in a position to be able to exploit air power. And, you know, if I had the classic Air Force mission statement, it's probably something along the lines about air and space power. But, man, you know what I mean. Things that are up above in the atmosphere, we've got to bring to bear to help the team that's on the ground to achieve its objective. And to do that, we're on the ground with them because we got to understand what the ground scheme maneuver is. And then the battlefield airmen are there to exploit whatever the air component or that's out there, whoever owns it, can bring to bear to help them be successful. So that's kind of the larger picture. For combat controllers, man, they're trained air traffic controllers, which allows them to talk to a whole lot of airplanes and, ha- and, and convince them to do the right things really safely. Of course, they're fire supporters like our TACP brothers are, which a lot gives us the ability to call in uh, – ordinance to, to put uh, rounds on target to, 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 to call in airstrikes because of all the gear that is on each combat controller out there to be able to communicate both verbally and digitally with all the all the different players that are out there in the battle space you have the ability to have sky high situational awareness so you're like a you're, you're you're walking around with a light fast lethal special operations force and then because of what you got on your body you can plug into this very sophisticated electronic network that can bring in some really uh, some kinetic and non-kinetic effects really quickly, and that's that's ultimately what your combat controller is doing out there. Is he's embedded in these different special operation ground forces that are out there that are moving fast, that that are that are outnumbered, but like I told you before, our qualitative edge is, is, is our people that we know that we can out finesse the adversary given the given the the, the opportunity. Because, man, I'm telling you, the adversary is really clever. Man, I tell my young guys, the dumb ones all got killed in the first wave. That, um, man, it, it is a very clever thinking adversary out there. Um, so it, that's why it's important that we have this cross-functional team, you know, the this lethal special operations force with their combat controller uh, assigned to them so that we can bring all these different forces together so we can get this, man, I guess, doctrinally an asymmetric advantage so that we can outmaneuver and outthink a clever enemy. And so we can dominate him and destroy him before he before he hits us. Um, so that, I guess that's what your combat controller is doing out there. For the listeners out there that aren't that aren't, aren't aware, these Air Force combat controllers and the other battlefield uh, airmen, man, they're scuba qualified, they're free fall qualified, they man we ride bikes, they repel fast row, whatever it takes to get to work. This this Air Force guy is, is doing it as well. What's really neat to see that, and, and you know this because Mark, I'm I'm certain told you some stories about it. But we take 19, 20 year old kids, 18 year old kids, man, we throw them in the I say kids, man, young men, sled dogs, we throw them in the pipeline and we give them about two and a half years to get really good at every one of these disciplines, and then we unleash them in, in, into the into combat. And I'll tell you that I'll tell you, man, as sure as I'm sitting here today, that as an ops officer and as a commander. Every time when it came to handing out assignments, man, one of my buddies would come in from an ODA, a special forces team, and say, hey, man, I got to have Ish back, for example, or I got to have this guy back or that guy back. And I'd say, hey, man, he's not available, but I got you, you know, senior airman Forster. You know, I don't want Forster. Man, I want, I, want, I want this guy or that guy. No, man, you got this young man named Mark Forster or whoever it is. You know what I mean? Uh, Johnny Yellick. Man, let me give you the names. Let me count the ways. And then, man, as sure as I'm sitting here, Thad, two weeks later, hey, I check in. Hey, how's it going? Man, this guy's awesome. And then guess what? A year from now, who are they asking for? They're asking for those same guys back. It's really cool. It shows that our pipeline works, the way we select and train these young men, and then the way we we, we entrust them, and then the way we unleash them. Man, the system works. 
because they keep having great effects out there. And then the teams that they're with that were suspicious of them at first because they didn't know them, they're young, and they're from the Air Force. Man, a couple weeks into it, they won't go anywhere on target without making sure that that guy's nearby. And then next year when they push in the bad guy land again, they want that same guy with them. The experienced guys just trust us. Hey, just trust us, man. Special tax is going to send us another guy. He's going to be a young guy, but he's going to be okay. But some of the younger joint special operators out there, man, if you're listening, just give the guy a chance because I'm telling you, he's, he's going he's gonna to not let you down. Um, Dad, does that make sense, man? That's, that's kind of what combat controllers do out there, man. I think they get it done for us, man. They help us dominate on target. Yeah, and it seems to me that uh, something unique about them too, and is very remarkable, is is that you know there you have to be able to attach to other teams regularly. So you're never with the same people all the time. Is that right? So maybe six months you're with this team, you come home and you pull again, and you're with a completely different group. Is that generally how it goes? Yeah, that's absolutely how it goes. And so if you think, man, you think about Mark when he was a young man or, or the, the young men that are out there now, they have to step into this team room. And whether, you know, before the war, we were going to isolation, we'd all deploy together. So you meet the guy back in, you know, CONUS, and then you and then you deploy together. We still try to do that with exercises now before we deploy. But with just the, the sheer volume of work, oftentimes you don't meet the team until you check into the FOB downrange, the Ford operating base downrange you swap out with the guy that was there you take his bunk yeah man you swap out the crypto you get the freaks and then you go out on the next mission with them and um man imagine the anxiety of the young man on his first deployment he steps into this you know this this special forces team or you know a marsoc team or or a nav you know nav spec war team and man he's got to go execute now the beauty of it is that they're so well trained that if they can just get through that anxiety those first few days of meeting everybody and kind of figuring out who's who Man, as soon as aircraft check on and the rounds start flying, man, they're going to go to work. And after that, then, man, the ice is broken and, and, and they're going to be accepted into it. But let me pose this to you, uh, Thad, because this is the dilemma for special tactics is, you know, each team, as a, you know, say my young, our young captains out there, our young team sergeants and captains, you know, they, they're trying to nurture a culture that they think is right for their flight, for their team, you know, for our piece of the fight. So you have these guys for you know nine months. They train together. They, they they do everything together. And then for six months, everybody goes downrange into these other team rooms all around you know Afghanistan, Iraq, Jordan, Syria, wherever they're at. And for six months, they pick up their culture and then they come back. And when you come back to a team room after a deployment, you got 15, 18 dudes that were all at different locations assigned to different teams, and everybody kind of has their own uh, part of their culture part brought into it. In some ways, it's it's helpful because we get to kind of say, that how do they do it? How do they do it? How do they do it? And and man, we get to see you know we get to see some things that we might not have seen. But on the other hand, man, if if if, uh, if it wasn't the same culture that you were trying to strike, strike, man, you got to reset the team and you got to get them going again. And that's why I think our special tactics officers and our and our senior NCOs, man, I think they got a, a huge job out there, a huge massive leadership challenge of bringing these guys back together that have been running one deep for six months, get them back into a, a coherent team so we can train together because they also have a mission to deploy together to go do airfields and reconnaissance and things like that. Not everything that we do is one deep. You know, that's where the market, the, this war has brought us, you know, the, the kinetic nature of the war. But, uh, man, we're getting back to having to go on target and go survey airfields and open and, and make access globally 
to the different uh, platforms out there that need to get into some different places. So uh, I don't know if I'm articulating that really well, but it's a real leadership challenge for a young officer to have to come back with 18 dudes in a bend-down range with 18 different teams in 18 different locations and put his team back together again. And uh, intellectually, I think it's fun for him. But I also tell you it's demanding, and, and I'm, I'm proud of our officers because I think they do a fine job uh, managing that, lead, leading that. Yeah, I'm glad you shared that perspective because I've always looked at it from just the individual standpoint of it, adapting to the team once you go down range. But I never thought about coming back to your, you know, Air Force team. Yep. Well, Kurt, in closing, I'd like to ask you. I mean, you know. What would you do if your son or sons came to you and said, "I want to be a, I want to join the Air Force, or I want to be a combat controller"? What would you say to them? Yeah, so uh, the answer is yes, but they could say whatever it is, Thad, that that makes them happy and if it's honorable, you know what I mean? Um, and I mean, it could be they want to go, they want to go be a, a tightrope walker in a circus, man. As long as they live the, and conduct themselves honorably. Then man, I'm I'm all about it. And you know, it's ironic that you say that. I got two boys, Drew, 16, Brock's 14, and uh, you know they're you know. So I've been retired for three years now, but they still remember the guys that I ran with. We still get to go to some functions, so they know the type of work I did and the guys that I ran with. But we don't talk about it much, which, to be honest with you, is part of the success that we're having in special operations in our military. Is we don't have to talk about the war much. Because it's not all around us. Because if we weren't successful, they'd be here, man. I'm telling you, the enemy would come into my house tonight and kill my boys if 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 they thought they could if they could get away with it. But our but we're just too strong that they can't. So in some ways, that's a compliment, of course, to our, our defense and our first responders. Uh, it, it gives me time to raise my boys. Like what what our military has done is it's given me decision space to raise my boys the manner that I want to do it. You know, like I've seen, I've been in these countries. Where kids have been pressed into the fight, they didn't have any choice, and and fortunately that's not this country. You know, I've got the decision space to raise my boys the way I see fit. We talk about the nature of the war and about their responsibility to be sheepdogs and look after others, more so than just looking after themselves. Uh, but you know, we don't talk about the 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 they don't talk about combat control much. Uh, my 16-year-old, you know, based on what he's doing in high school, may ask about, you know, national security or, or things of that nature, things going on domestically. But but I like that, man. It means I get to raise the boys on the tempo that I think is appropriate and introduce them to the nature of the world at the pace that I think is appropriate. And so, it, like, if they were to walk in and say, "Hey, I want to be a combat controller," man, that's awesome. Like, what are you gonna what what, what are you gonna do to what can I do to help you prepare for it? They come in and say they want to go to college. That's awesome. They come in and say they want to be a mechanic. That's awesome. They come in and man, they say they want to join the circus. That's awesome, man. Just live honorably. Uh, do it the best you can. Work as hard as you can, and make sure you call your mom because we're gonna miss you. You know, um, it, when like just because we're really close. Like, uh, Dad, you didn't. We didn't get into it much. I retired at 23 years, and clearly I could have stayed in, and it was a decision that I made because I wanted to spend time with my boys before they left the house. And I'm telling you, I'm executing the base plan still, even though maybe teaching high school didn't work out the way that I that I expected. And and now I'm doing Intrepid. And and even this, like right now, I'm talking to you from a, a remote location because I've got work in Arizona this week. But I'm making sure that I'm not filling up my, my calendar every month with work, uh, chasing the buck at the cost of the time that I have with my boys and my wife. Um, because ultimately, that's, man, that's, 
and that that's my responsibility is to is to raise them. I've got the man side of the relationship, and Jen, my Spartan wife, has got the woman side of the relationship, and together we're raising our boys as best as we can. Um, if they want to be combat controllers, man, get after it. Uh, whatever it is, man, they just better get after it, and they and they better they better do it right and, and live honorably. That's my expectations of them. I, I expect them to make some mistakes along the way. I got no issues with that. They just got to own up to it, be accountable to it, and then get back on task. So uh, I don't know, Dad, if, if, does that make sense or not? Absolutely. No, that, that's great. That's great stuff, Kurt. What? Anything else you'd like to say in closing? Dad, man, you know, I um, I miss my teammates. I'll I tell you that. The, I've met a lot of neat folks. I live outside Louisville, Kentucky now, small town in Goshen. There's really good people there. Kentucky's a really neat state. Um, everybody's is it's awesome. It's different, you know, when you move into a, a military community. You know, everybody knows you're new, so they, you know, they they you know, like everybody's everybody's new, so. You know, they tell you if you if you're asking for directions, they kind of help you get there. You go move into a Goshen, Kentucky, and then they ask for a direction, and they'll say, "Well, you know where the old Wilson farm is?" Uh, no, I don't know where that's at. No, <laughs> well, what about that old cedar wood uh, that that broke in the storm last year that everybody tied up the highway for a year? No, man, I don't know where that's at. And they kind of look at me like, "Man, you're not from around here, are you?" No, I'm not. But they're re- they're awesome people, really nice um, people. But I'm, I do miss my teammates. I miss my community. The the guys I grew up with. Um, and, and I guess Intrepid allows me to kind of get around them a little bit. You know, maybe they don't miss me. I don't know, but, uh, I, I certainly miss them and, and I, I don't, so I hope that doesn't sound like I'm sad. I'm not sad. I'm, I'm excited to be in Kentucky with my boys and with Jen, man, we got a good church. We got good schools, good sports, good neighbors, good community. Uh, it really, what it did is it, it reminded me how special my time was with my teammates and allows me to reflect on it and not take it for granted. So what Intrepid has allowed me to do is to get back and see those guys with a little bit more frequency. And when I do, man, I um I, I try to bring it strong for them. But also, uh, man, I, I get a chance to be around my teammates again, and that that's really special for me. That so thanks for giving me the opportunity tonight to um to 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 talk here. I know my teammates they're gonna tune me out after about five minutes anyway because I probably sound like a broken record to them. But uh, I do appreciate that the opportunity to talk about them a little bit. And, uh, and to tell you my story uh, for what it's worth, that I, I appreciate the uh, the invite to do that, okay? Hey, this has been my pleasure. I've loved it. And there's so much more I would have loved to have talked to you about. And some other topics that you and I had discussed we just couldn't get to and that you and I discussed previously. And, I mean, I would I, I would love it if you were would be open to come back sometime and we could talk about some more. Um, but, you know, that we can work that in between your schedule and if you're up to it again. But it's... It's been awesome, and uh, thank you for, man, for taking the fight to the enemy for so many years and then for training our young guys to, to do the same. Yeah, you bet, that man. I wouldn't have it any other way, but uh, thank you. I appreciate it. Who y'all, team? So there you have it. I was motivated and pumped up. I hope you were, too, by Mr. Buller. Uh, thank you, Kurt, for coming on the show. Really appreciate that, especially when you thought you were going to be able to get out of it. I gave you a chance, but uh, glad you, you chose to speak with me for a few minutes. I did want to let the guests know that uh, once again, that we, I am on Patreon. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's basically a way where people can support the cause. There's artists, you know, there's writers, podcasters, musicians, videographers, all kinds of people uh, on, on Patreon. And they're just all looking for, uh, people to support them and in return get something special. So you can go on to patreon.com forward slash Patriot to the core so that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Patriot to the core. Or just go to Patreon and search for Patriot to the core. But uh, you can uh, you can read about the 
options. It's it's two bucks a month, five bucks a month, ten bucks a month. It's just simple things, and there's just little things that I offer like uh, early access to episodes or you know some surveys or opportunity to be a guest blogger uh, on my, I guess writer on my blog. Just little things like that, a signed book. But if you wouldn't mind, just go check it out and see what you think. Uh, I'd love to be able to provide some quality content and to uh, upgrade some equipment and to improve my logo because most of all, uh, most importantly right now, I want that logo to look a little more professional. So patreon.com forward slash patriot to the core. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening.